Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bob Ziegler, one of the past presidents of the Civil War Roundtable. It's my privilege and pleasure this morning to introduce our next topic and our next speaker. John Simon has very thoroughly and very capably covered Grant's overall performance and contributions to the Union war efforts during the Civil War. And at this point, we'll begin to examine Grant's performance in specific situations. The next presentation will examine Grant's performance at the Battle of Belmont in November 19, or 1861. Belmont was Grant's first major battle action during the war. And his performance at Belmont, just as in many of his later actions, is certainly not without its share of controversy. Our speaker will be sharing with us his views and conclusions on Grant's performance at that battle. Our speaker is active in many areas related to the Civil War, including the reactivated 46th Illinois Infantry Regiment, which is a black powder competition team. He's involved with the U.S. Grant Association, the collecting of Illinois Civil War memorabilia, and presentations to various Civil War organizations such as our own. However, his special interest is in the Battle of Belmont, Columbus, on which he has done extensive research and is a recognized authority. He's a graduate of St. Joseph College in Rensselaer, Indiana, the father of two sons, and resides in the Joliet, Illinois area. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Arleskis. <clears throat> Can you hear me now? Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. My segment of today's seminar will be on U.S. Grant and the Battle of Belmont, which was fought on November the 7th, 1861. The Battle of Belmont, when compared to battles like Shiloh, Gettysburg, or Chickamauga, is considered a minor engagement. <clears throat> so why study it at all? We do because of one man, that's General U.S. Grant. Belmont was Grant's first battle in the Civil War, and the first in his entire life in which he was in direct command of troops. Historians like to study Belmont because they believe it's the starting point of the development of Grant as a general. What Grant learned at Belmont, he carried through to Fort Donelson and later Vicksburg. In most Grant biographies, fortunately or unfortunately, Belmont has only given a few pages of text, and there are two good reasons for this. Number one, what is available in military history books and recorded history on Belmont is very scarce. This leaves historians very little to build on. The second part is that what is available in terms of the official records or reports of the Civil War is contradictory, unsupported by documentation, and very difficult to follow. This gives us, our grant historians, license to give their inter personal interpretation or opinions of the battle. These tend to confuse his readers, or their readers, <clears throat> and if the person has read more than one book on General Grant, this is very evident. It was only in this century that Grant's actions at Belmont began to be scrutinized, and this brought a result of Grant biographers to try to understand Grant the General and Grant the Man. Three of them come to mind. The first to study Grant at Belmont was A.L. Conger in his book, The Rise of U.S. Grant. The second is Kenneth P. Williams in volume three of his book, or his major works, Lincoln Finds a General. And the third is our own John Y. Simon, my mentor and editor of the U.S. Grant Papers. Conger, using primarily the official records, ended his study of Belmont by calling it difficult to justify, technically foolhardy, 
yet psychologically a necessity for Grant and his men. Williams took Conger to task on his Belmont interpretations or opinions, and, but like Conger, was unsure of why Grant attacked Belmont in the first place, which is one point of contention on the battle. Professor Simon sums up the Belmont controversy by saying that, it, that no satisfactory explanation can be found by examining either the orders of Grant's superiors or the actions of his opponents, the Confederates, in attacking Belmont. The answer must be found in U.S. Grant himself, and no simple answer will do. So what are these controversies? What are these questions regarding Grant and Belmont? Well, since most historians choose to use Grant's 1864 revised report, which appeared in the official records, and his memoirs as their primary research only in writing about Belmont, we will discuss the four most controversial questions or issues raised in these two items. From his 1864 revised report, number one, the November, November the 5th telegram received from headquarters St. Louis ordering Grant to demonstrate immediately against Columbus. The question is, was there a telegram? Did this exist? The second part from the memoirs, or excuse me, from the revised report, the 2 a.m. message from W.H.L. Wallace reportedly received the early morning of the 7th of November, which was the prime reason why Grant attacked Belmont in the first place. So he states, was there a telegram or a message? And from his memoirs, the statement to the effect that he had no direct orders from headquarters to attack Belmont in the first place, and his reasons given in his memoirs for attacking because his own men wanted to, and to save Colonel Oglesby. In Grant's revised 1864 report, revised because the next bit of information wasn't mentioned in his first report of 1861, Grant states, on November the 5th, a telegram was received from headquarters St. Louis, stating that the enemy was reinforcing Price and directed a demonstration that had been made should be made against Columbus <clears throat> immediately. Historians aren't sure who sent this telegram. They believe it to be Captain Chauncey McKeever, Fremont's adjutant general in St. Louis. Keever, McKeever probably sent the telegram hoping that it might stall Fremont's removal. He, it was, he was too late. And I'll give a little bit of background on this. This is the difficult part. This is the part where it's hard to follow. The situation in the West, the latter part of October, first part of November, Fremont was at Springfield about to give battle to General Sterling M. Price, or everybody believes so. Grant was in Cairo. He was in charge of the District of Southeast Missouri with about 13,000 men. Fremont knew that any demonstration in his rear towards St. Louis or Ironton would cause him to retreat, something he could not do. He knew he was about to be relieved. So on the 1st of November, rumors were around Confederates were trying to reinforce General Price. So he ordered General Grant and General C.F. Smith at Paducah to make a demonstration on both sides of the Mississippi River towards Beaumont and Columbus to keep the Confederates there. On the 2nd of November, he received his orders for the relieval of his command. On that same day, Confederate troops were spotted near the St. Francis River, excuse me, near Ironton, and Grant was ordered to send a demonstration to drive those troops into Arkansas. Those are troops under General Jeff Thompson. On the third this expedition left, 
The command was given to Colonel Oglesby, who landed at Commerce and began marching down towards Bloomfield. On the 5th, this telegram was received. And this telegram only is written down in the revised report. A search of the War Department records has failed to find the actual telegram, making some historians doubt its existence. This would make Grant and his staff guilty of falsifying a report to cover up what many believe to be a bungled attempt by Grant on his part to capture Columbus, Kentucky. What I have found is two contemporary newspaper accounts of the battle that mention this November the 5th telegram. The first appeared in the Louisville Journal. The reporter claimed he was shown a letter in General Grant's quarters from a Captain McKeever directing Grant to move against Belmont and avoid Columbus. The second is from the St. Louis Weekly Missouri Democrat. In their rendition of Belmont, they tell of an order received for a demonstration downriver after Oglesby left for St. Francis. These two articles aren't proof positive an order on the 5th was received, but they do support what is stated by Grant in his 1864 report. On the 6th, on the morning of the 6th, Grant sought to more effectively enhance his demonstration, decided to change the direction of Oglesby's column, who was moving down from Commerce to Bloomfield, towards New Madrid, which would be below uh, Belmont. He would strengthen this column with a small force under Colonel W.H.L. Wallace. Ogilvy's new orders were to march towards New Madrid, halting to communicate with me, Grant, at Belmont, from the nearest point inland. This last statement is taken by some historians to imply Grant intended to land and attack Belmont before he left Cairo. Grant intended to land near Belmont, yes, but attack, no. To further strengthen my argument, I have an excerpt from the diary of Colonel Jacob Lauman of the 7th Iowa Infantry. He writes, we are once more under, under marching orders, and tomorrow night, the 6th, we set out on a reconnaissance in force. The object is to hold the rebels at Columbus, 18 miles below from crossing the river, and forming a junction with Price. I do not anticipate much fighting. Grant, in his first official report of the battle, also describes the Belmont expedition as a reconnaissance towards Columbus. Not an attack, but an armed demonstration to see what the Confederates were up to. On question two, the 2 a.m. message. Grant states at two o'clock in the morning on board the, on board the steamer Bell Memphis, he received a message from Colonel W.H.L. Wallace that the enemy were crossing troops from Columbus to Belmont for the purpose of following after and cutting off Colonel Oglesby. Grant says he felt the report to be possible so they decided to attack Belmont the next morning for two reasons, to save Oglesby and prevent the reinforcements, if any, from reaching General Price. This 2 a.m. message is not recorded anywhere in the War Department, so they also doubt its existence. Grant did receive a communication from a Colonel Plummer at 2 a.m. Plummer was confused as to what was going on. Grant told him to reinforce his 10th Iowa Infantry, which is marching down towards Bloomfield, and gave him the orders from Fremont to drive uh, the Confederate force under Thompson into Arkansas. He would need Oglesby's column with him. I believe it was Plummer who sent the message, if there was one, not Wallace, as the evidence shows. Wallace, the evening of that day that Grant left Cairo, 
was encamped at Charleston, Missouri, a four and a half hour train ride from Burt's Point. Wallace arrived in Charleston at 8.30 p.m. and stayed all night. To get a message back to Grant, it would have taken six or seven hours and could not have reached Grant by two o'clock in the morning. Also, in the communications between Oglesby and Wallace, Wallace never mentions to Oglesby the report of enemy troops crossing the river to attack him. Instead, he tells Oglesby to join Grant at Belmont. Those are verbal orders given to Wallace from Grant to march in the direction of a reported enemy column sent out to attack him. W.H.L. Wallace could not have sent the 2 a.m. message without informing Oglesby at the same time of the danger he was facing. Wallace never mentioned his warning to anybody else either, either in, including his wife. He told her he understood that the battle was supposed to be necessary to protect our southwestern army, Fremont's in Missouri, from overwhelming forces being rapidly consolidated against it from Arkansas, Tennessee, and Columbus, Kentucky. This explanation for Belmont by Wallace is the same one generally used by the soldiers of Grant's command and the one most often found in the newspapers. Wallace never understood the reasons for Belmont either. So they fought the battle. His troops landed about three miles at Lucas Bend, marched down. They were confronted by about 2,500 Confederates. He had about 3,000 men. In a running battle that morning, he captured their camp, took about 200 prisoners, and an entire six-gun battery. The Confederates were able to cross troops over, surround Grant's men. He had to fight his way through at a very high cost in casualties. Grant's forces lost 120 killed, 383 wounded, and 114 missing, presumed captured in the retreat. That, re that equates to nearly one in five men engaged becoming a casualty. Belmont was a bloody fight. So we come to part three and four, what Grant states is his reasons for attacking Belmont. <clears throat> General Grant stuck to his story after he came back from Cairo. The story of a large force being prepared to join Price from Columbus and reported the same to headquarters at eight, on the 8th. Excuse me. In a private letter to his father, he repeated the reinforcement part and stated the object of the expedition to prevent the enemy from spending a force into Missouri to cut off Oglesby. In his first official report of the battle, dated November the 10th, he again repeated what he told his father verbatim as his reasons for attacking Belmont and repeated the same again in his memoirs, except for one thing. 24 years later, Grant admitted he had no direct orders from headquarters to attack Belmont. Grant says he attacked Belmont because, this is from his memoirs, he saw that the officers and men were elated at the prospect of at last having the opportunity of what they had volunteered to do, fight the enemies of their country. I did not see how I could maintain discipline or retain the confidence of my command if we should return to Carroll without an effort to do something. He told W.H.L. Wallace the same thing a few days later from an unpublished letter from W.H.L. Wallace. Wallace writes to his wife, he said, Grant, that if he had had regular troops, he would not have fought at Belmont, but that he thought after he landed that if he embarked again without fighting, he would never have been able to convince his volunteer soldiers that he was not afraid to fight. Grant attacked Belmont for the sake of his volunteers and probably for his own sake. There is evidence that Grant believed his demonstration would force the Confederates to abandon Columbus. 
Grant, who knew Fremont, was relieved two days before Belmont, felt inside a great victory on the Mississippi River might enable Fremont and him to keep their commands. Grant was prepared in either case. Grant, as we know, went on to bigger victories in the rank of Lieutenant General of the Armies, but never really got over the controversy associated with his first command in Belmont. Many historians have pulled Grant apart when researching his first field command. They hit him for not keeping out a reserve, for losing control of his troops, not using his gunboards more effectively, attacking apparently without orders, scattering his command and claiming a victory when he was forced to retreat and his little army almost destroyed. I say Belmont was pure Grant. He attacked without fear of the enemy. Using his common sense, he attacked where he felt it might do the most good. In his plans of operation, he drew from all involved, the Navy, Fremont, and his staff. Everyone else's ideas became Grant's because he put them into motion. He was a mover. As to attacking without orders, Lincoln said of Grant, I can't spare this man, he fights. Grant fought at Belmont. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for a very interesting and informative presentation. Tom, like uh, our other speakers today, has, will entertain any questions or comments you may have on his presentation. Are there any questions or comments on it? You may get off easier than we thought. No. <laughs> I, was, I was so good. I, you, you explained it. I think that's the answer. He explained it all. Thank you again, Tom.